This morning's scripture reading is found in Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Good morning. If you're sitting towards the front, you might notice that my eye is a little red. I was gardening on Thursday right before winter hit again (laughs) and happened to uh, not see a branch that caught me in the eye and kind of gouged me a bit in the eye. So, um, but it did uh, remind me of that scripture that Jesus says, very wise words where he says, take the beam out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in somebody else's. So uh, yeah, it's a good reminder of that. (laughs) Well, you will recall on October 2nd, 2006, when a gunman named Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse, chased out the teacher, all the boys, everyone else, and kept only the young girls, proceeded to execute five of them, shot five others he was trying to kill, who were all critically injured, and then turned the gun on himself. The most amazing thing about that event that the media picked up on immediately was how the Amish extended forgiveness. That very afternoon, people from the Amish community were in Charles Roberts' house consoling his grieving widow and children. Even the families of those who had lost their daughters quickly forgave. And the media was astounded by that. They couldn't understand it. This is in a secular publication. says this. After he cold-bloodedly shot ten innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion toward his family. 
In a world at war and in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction was unheard of. Amen. Many reporters and interested followers of the story asked, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives? This is the explanation. The Amish culture closely follows the teachings of Jesus, who taught his followers to forgive one another, to place the needs of others before themselves, and to rest in the knowledge that God is still in control and that God can bring good out of any situation. Amazing insight. Amazing insight. You see, I believe forgiveness is one of the primary characteristics of believers. God has forgiven us. That's what makes us his people. We are a forgiven people by definition. That's how we get to be in the people of God. And one of the primary unusual characteristics that should have us stand out in a world of revenge and anger is how we forgive one another. Even those who have harmed us, who have perpetuated evil against us. But the reality is most of us don't forgive very readily, do we? We struggle to forgive. It's hard for us when people do evil things to us, when they abuse us and betray us and harm us, it's difficult for us to let it go. I think one of the reasons it is is because the anger we feel, the resentment, makes us feel powerful. And when someone has harmed us, we feel powerless. And the anger somehow empowers us and we want to hang on to that because we hate the feeling of being vulnerable again. Well, if it's any comfort, even biblical characters struggled to forgive. Most of us do. Most of us find it difficult. And in the scriptures, it's clear that struggling to forgive someone who's harmed you, who's betrayed you, who's done evil to you, struggling to forgive is not a problem with God. He understands that. But refusing to forgive is a problem. You see, it's his followers. He makes it clear that we must forgive. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, as he gives us the Lord's Prayer. In it, he says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14, right after the prayer, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Very strong words. Now we know theologically that Jesus is not saying, okay, your forgiveness depends on you forgiving others. But he is tying them so closely together, he's saying they can't be separated. If you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the sins that you have done, forgiveness that you do not deserve, then it is not an option for a Christian not to forgive others. It is our calling. It is what he calls us to. And though forgiveness is hard, 
if we are not at least moving towards forgiveness towards those who have harmed us, growing in forgiveness, in entering the process of forgiveness, but we refuse to over the long haul, then I think Jesus' words should make us question whether we know him at all. Because if you've known his forgiveness that you do not deserve, then he will move you to learn to forgive those who have harmed you, even though they don't deserve forgiveness either. Well, in our passage today, we see two brothers. And I believe both of them are struggling to forgive. Or they have struggled to forgive. And as we look at their responses, I believe we can learn a lot from Judah and Joseph about how we can move towards forgiveness when others have harmed us. So let me pray and we'll look at this text together. Lord, your word is powerful. And thank you that you do not mince words, but you also give us real-life examples, people that are just like us. And as we look at this passage and see people struggling to forgive, may we, in our struggle as well, learn to forgive by the power of your Spirit. Teach us today. Open our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the passage that David just read, you see how... Joseph has given food to his brothers. He never reveals himself, sends them away. Now they've come back, and they want food. So he kind of wines and dines them, and then he tricks them. We saw how he put the money back in their grain sacks as he sends them away, but then he hides his special cup in Benjamin's sack. He accuses them falsely of evil. Notice verses 4 and 5. They had just gone out of the city and they were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Joseph sends his steward and says, Accuse them of evil. Accuse them of wrong. And Benjamin, the youngest, the favorite of Jacob, the one that was favored, is the one who has the cup put in his sack. And now the brothers are in big trouble. And in verse 14 through 17, we see how Joseph is making his brothers sweat. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Now remember, Joseph is speaking through an interpreter here. They don't know it's Joseph. He's not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Egyptian. So he's speaking to them, What is this you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whom in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph makes his brother sweat. He's deceived them. He's tricked them. He's put the cup in their sack. It's been two years since he met them when they first came for food, but he still hasn't revealed himself to them. He's showing power over them, accusing them of evil falsely. And as I look at that, 
And Judah's conscience gets aroused and he says, he says, you found out our iniquity. Now, they didn't do anything wrong this time. But I wonder if Judah isn't remembering what they did to Joseph and just thinking, God's caught us. He's caught up with us. You see, his conscience was awakened. But as I look at this and what Joseph is doing here, I ask myself, and I, I think the question we have to ask is, why does he do this to his brothers? Why does he drag this out for two years? Why does he falsely accuse them of evil? Why does he make them suffer? Now, the narrator never explains it. (laughs) So we're left to look at the clues of the text to figure that out. And a common interpretation is that, that Joseph here is simply testing his brothers because he cares about them and he wants them to move to repentance. Now, there may be some of that there. But I guess what I see in Joseph's heart is something I see in my heart, in our hearts, is a struggle to forgive. Uh, A a sense that they had power over me when I was 17 and they sold me. They destroyed my life at the time. I lost my family. And now I've got power over them and I'm just going to enjoy it a little bit. (laughs) I'm going to make them suffer a bit. You see, I, I think we see enough clues in the text to say that at least Joseph has mixed motives here. He is struggling to forgive his brothers who had harmed him so much, who had perpetrated evil against him. Just like we struggle to forgive those who hurt us, right? We don't want to be vulnerable to them. We want to stay safe to protect ourselves and we want to hang on to the anger and hurt because that's empowering for us. It makes us feel at least we have something over them, if nothing else. At least we're angry. And being vulnerable again is terrifying. Well, then we hear in the Christian world so often words like forgive and forget. Hey, if you're Christian, you should just forgive and forget. Pretend like it never happened. Well, frankly, I don't think those are biblical words. (laughs) We are to forgive. But I don't think we're ever told to forget. I think, in fact, we are not to act as though it never happened. God doesn't want us to forget. But what he does want us to do is move towards forgiveness in a a way that in light of the harm and the damage done, yet we still forgive. That's the miracle of grace. That's what God calls us to as believers. So, why forgive? (laughs) Why let go of the resentment and the anger? Well, first of all, and most importantly, because it reflects the very heart of God. God is a forgiving God who has taken the punishment on himself that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. And we are God's people because we are a a forgiven people. That's what ties us together. That he died for us and we have accepted that forgiveness as a free gift that we do not deserve. And therefore, when we forgive others, we are reflecting the very heart of God in a world that does not know him and needs to see his heart expressed. Secondly, we should forgive because resentment always continues the damage. 
Now, we think resentment, anger, if we hang on to it, it, it somehow gives us power, and, but, you know, resentment always continues the damage. It, in, in essence, gives the other person who harmed us power over us. Because we're saying what they did to me is going to so consume my life, I will not let go of this anger. And it becomes a bitter root that defiles many. So why should we forgive? So that we can let go of the damage and be free from it and move on and not give the person such power over us any longer. Third, we should forgive because Resentment ultimately, and this is tied to the last one, really ultimately harms us, not them. We think we're doing harm to them. We're not. We're eating up our own lives by resentment. You've heard me quote it before, a famous saying. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Think about that. I'm going to eat this anger. I'm going to eat this resentment. I'm going to hang on to it. And boy, I sure hope that hurts them. (laughs) No, it doesn't. That lets the other person win. That's pretty foolish, right? If you step back and think about it. Do we really want that? So what does true forgiveness look like? Well, I think as we look at Judah and Joseph, we'll see some things that help us understand what a picture of true forgiveness looks like. Now, let me remind you about Judah. Judah was the fourth of the 12 sons. He was the one way back when who all the brothers were so jealous because Jacob, their father, favored Joseph. And they were angry at him and they were jealous. They were hurt because their father didn't love them. He made it clear. He loved Joseph. So they had to destroy Joseph. They were going to murder him. And Judah says, nah, let's not murder him. Let's get some money out of him. Let's at least sell him to the Ishmaelites that are coming by. And so he sold him, but he was heartless in it. He wasn't trying to save his life. He just wanted more money for himself. And then when they came to their father and pretended that Joseph was dead, they had his coat of many colors and had blood on it. And and he stood by with the other brothers and watched their father suffer for days, grieving over the loss of Joseph. That's how angry Judah was about towards his father at the unfairness of, of Jacob's favoritism. Later on, we see in chapter 38 how we saw how Judah acted out. He didn't care what his father wanted. His father had gone to make sure he married someone in the family line, a Semite, But Judah just says, I'm going to marry a Canaanite. He kind of leaves the family. It was offensive to the whole family, and yet he went and did his own thing. You just see in Judah that there's an anger, an unforgiveness towards his father, punishing him. And yet, look what has happened over the last 14 years, as now as we see his heart, as he gives a speech from verse 18 through 34. And you begin to see how his heart has changed toward his father. Let me just read parts of it to you. Starting in verse 18, Judah approached him, approached Joseph, and he said, Oh, my Lord. And remember, he doesn't know this is his younger brother that he had sold into bondage. Oh, my Lord, may may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. 
My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child in his old age. Now his brother is dead, so they think. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Think for a minute as he says those words. Yeah, my father has this youngest son, Benjamin, and he loves him. Not me, but him. And then notice as he goes on with the story, verse 26 and following, we said we can't go down as he recounts the history of what has happened. And Judah, or Jacob says, go down, get more food. We're hungry again. But he says, we can't go down if our youngest brother, youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, So he quotes his father Jacob and listen to what he says. You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, Surely he's torn to pieces and I haven't seen him since. Speaking of Joseph, If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Notice what Judah does. He quotes his father saying, Hey, I've only got two sons that I care about. How painful that must have been for him. But it shows something very powerful, I think, about Judah's move towards forgiveness. And that is that forgiveness takes facing the damage, facing the harm, facing the pain. He knows freely. He's facing it clearly. He states it very clearly what his father has done to him and his other brothers. By, being, by choosing favorites of Joseph and Benjamin. Forgiveness begins by facing the hurt. Jacob hasn't changed at all, has he, in this favoritism. He hasn't suddenly said, okay, now I love Judah too. No, he hasn't. And yet Judah has forgiven him. How has he done that? Beginning first by facing the reality of the damage. Now sometimes we think, well, I'll just won't look at it. I'll just pretend like it didn't happen. I just won't look at how much harm this person did to me. And maybe then I can forgive. Well, that doesn't work, folks. Because it will come out another way. It will come out in the way we treat other people. It will come out in resentment. It will come out in harsh words. It will come out in a bitter spirit. It will come out in all kinds of other ways if we don't clearly face the reality of the damage that this other person did to us. So forgiveness begins by facing the hurt. Secondly, forgiveness means revoking revenge. Revoking revenge. Letting go of paying the person back, of punishing them back. Revoking revenge, that's a term that comes from a book by Dan Allender called Bold Love. If you or someone you know is really struggling to forgive someone who has done real harm or abuse, I commend that book to you, Bold Love. It has a wonderful picture of how we move towards really forgiving those who have harmed us. What we see here is Judah has a wonderful opportunity to punish his father and to punish Benjamin. I mean, if he just didn't say anything, Benjamin would be a slave. Judah could take off, go back to his father, watch his father suffer. And also maybe have the hope that with Benjamin out of the picture, now maybe my dad will love me. He has a perfect opportunity 
for revenge. And you know what? He lets it go. Forgiveness means letting go of revenge, revoking revenge, letting go of payback, saying, no, I will not pay this person back. I will not punish them for the harm they did to me. Jude has been living again for 14 years, watching his father continue to favor Benjamin and Joseph. He could have paid him back, but he doesn't. Now, most of us are excellent at dreaming up punishments for the person who's hurt us, right? And you know what I mean? We all do that, don't we? Oh, I would just love to get back at so-and-so. And we dream up the things we would like to see happen to them. But Judah lets that go. He chooses not to do that. And we must do the same. We must leave vengeance in God's hands. Paul addresses that directly in Romans chapter 12 because apparently it was a problem in the early church. People were struggling because they were being persecuted and they were being harmed by others. And so he addresses it directly in verse 17 and following of Romans chapter 12. He says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19 Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, when we decide we're going to punish this person in whatever way, harsh words, shutting them out, whatever we do to punish them in our anger. Paul says what we do is we get in the way of God dealing with them. He says, leave room for the wrath of God. Let God deal with them. He's far better at it than you are. He's far better at bringing justice. Leave room for the wrath of God, he says, and instead, never repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. That's the challenge to us. So forgiveness means revoking revenge, letting go of payback, punishing. And then forgiveness means actually moving towards the person in love, the very person who harmed you, at least as much as you can. You may not be able to very well because of the situation, but forgiveness takes loving the one who hurt you where possible. Notice what Judah does, verse 30 and following, as he continues his speech before Joseph. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad's not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, notice what he says, Please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad's not with me? For fear that I will see the evil that would overtake my father. Judah is protecting his own father. 
from further hurt, further pain. He's moving towards him in love, even though his father hasn't changed. He wants to protect Benjamin. He wants to protect his father from further hurt. That's an amazing step. But I think it's a step that true forgiveness means we are willing to take that step. It's really evidence that we have forgiven. It doesn't mean that when you think about the incident or what the person did to you that it doesn't still hurt some. That may be there forever. But the true evidence you've forgiven is when you're able to move towards them in some way with love. You need to do that to have true healing. I have a friend who went through a difficult marriage. Her husband was unfaithful. Marriage broke up. They divorced. She came to the Lord. She married again a man who was a Christian. Thought, now it's going to be different finally. He was unfaithful as well. That marriage broke up. But God began to work in his life. He began to change and repented of his sin. He moved in with the other woman. They even had a child. But he sensed that God was, was breaking him and moving him back towards his wife. And they came back together. And they remarried. And their marriage was healed. But even beyond that, God began to work in her life to move her to begin to build a friendship with the other woman. And she writes this. The most amazing thing to come out of this situation is that the other woman named my husband and I as guardians of their new baby daughter. They had a new baby, this new woman who remarried, the other woman. Should something happen to them both? When the baby was born, our family was invited to the hospital to join them and their extended families in welcoming this baby into the family. It was incredible, our family and theirs, passing the baby around, taking pictures, and getting along like one big happy family. Can you imagine? Only God can accomplish such a thing. And then she gives us these words. Forgiveness can heal the heart and free you to live your life with joy. If we choose to make that conscious decision to forgive, we can live in God's perfect peace. But choosing to hold on to past injustices puts us in bondage and will spill into every other part of our lives. There's a woman who has experienced the fullness of forgiveness because she chose to forgive. Fourth, forgiveness always involves sacrifice. Benjamin offers himself as a sacrifice, or excuse me, Judah offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin to take Benjamin's place. Forgiveness is costly, folks. Let's not mince words about it. It, it just is. It's costly. It means giving up my rights. It means giving up my anger. It means self-sacrifice to be able to let God love the person through me somehow, some way, if possible. It may not be possible, but if possible. It's a dying to self. 
So what allows us to really forgive in this way? What, what's the key? What has to happen in our minds and in our hearts to really forgive? Well, I think we see it in Joseph's life as he now moves to forgiveness. Now, again, as I said, I think he's struggling to forgive. But when he sees Judah's heart and sees how Judah has been touched by God, then it awakens in him a forgiveness. In chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Now I think if he'd been just waiting for repentance and he finally saw it in a calculated way, he wouldn't have fallen apart this way. I think he's struggling to forgive, but when he sees Judah's heart, how God is at work in his family, he finally breaks down. He loses control, it says. He's maintained control. Now he loses it and he just breaks down and reveals himself. And he's finally in a place where he can forgive. And he reveals, I think, why he could forgive in verse 5 and following. He says this, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Verse 8, Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now wait a minute, they in anger had sold him. But Joseph, because he's walked with God, sees God at work in the whole thing. Now, it doesn't mean God perpetrated the evil, but it meant that God worked through it to spare Joseph's life, to take care of him along the way, that God is a redeemer God. He knows God is that kind of God that can take even the most evil situations and bring good out of it for all things to work together for good to those who love God, Romans 8.28, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, he sees that God was at work. How was he able to really forgive now after all the harm that had been done? Because he trusted in God's sovereignty. He really believed that God was real and God was in control, even working in the midst of an awful, painful, evil situation. He could only do that because he'd walked with God over these years and he began to see that God is bigger than the harm. God is bigger than what they, my brothers, did to me. And if you will see God as that big, expand your view of God, you too can move towards forgiveness, knowing that God's at work in the midst of whatever harm has been done you. What's the goal of forgiveness? Well, at the end, verses uh, 14 and 15, we see the brothers weeping together, Benjamin and Joseph weeping, and they gather around and they talk. What's the goal of forgiveness? Reconciliation. It may not happen. Reconciliation and forgiveness are two separate things. You must forgive, but reconciliation can only happen if God also works in the other person's life. And God breaks them and brings them to a place where now you can be reconciled. But Joseph is now experiencing that because he's seen what happened to Judah. He's seen how the brothers have changed and now they're able to be reconciled. And that's always the long-term goal. It may not happen, 
But regardless of whether it does or not, we are still called as followers of Christ to forgive. You see, God wants all of us to move towards forgiveness. And I'd like us to just now, I don't know how God's speaking to your heart this morning, but I want us to just take a few moments of silence and for you to just in your heart before the Lord, think of one person that you are having a hard time forgiving. You might want to write that name down on your bulletin secretly, but you know who it is. And take a moment to lift that name up to the Lord and ask God to help you move towards forgiveness towards that person. So let's take a couple minutes of silent prayer and then we're going to take communion together. Heavenly Father, as we gather around this table, your table, the Lord's table, to take the bread and the cup as a reminder that we are a forgiven people, that what bonds us together is your cross, your blood that was shed to wash us clean. We, we recognize as we do this that what makes us your people is your forgiveness. And Lord, We recognize as well that it's hard for us sometimes to forgive others. So, Lord, so grip us with the reality of what you have done for us. May we learn to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Though they don't deserve it, we don't deserve your forgiveness. And though they don't, may we extend it because you are living in us. And we are living in the forgiveness that's a gift from you. So, Lord, as we take communion together, we celebrate your forgiveness of us. In Jesus' name, amen.